Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. I'm Chris Taylor, and I'm going to be your host today. Let me tell you, we are so happy that you're listening in today. In fact, if this is your first time listening or you'd just like to reach out, feel free to shoot an email to hello at capitalcitychristian.org, and I'd be glad to talk with you. We're picking up right where we left off last week in this Making a Messiah, The Verdicts series. For the last several months, we've looked at Jesus's life and asked this question, who is he? Is he a magician, a great teacher, just a man, or is he who he said he was, the Messiah, the Son of God, sent here to save us? Today we're going to talk about Jesus' last day alive. He's been arrested, and now he's being dragged through trials, like you would before a judge. Each person there is asked to place some sort of judgment on who Jesus is. They have to answer the same question that we do. What's interesting about this group that we're looking at today is that they all had the same answer. Jesus is a nobody. Let's dig into today's message. Here's our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison. We've been kind of making a case ever since January. We're almost to the coup de grace. Is Jesus the Messiah or is he not? Is he really the son of God or is he not? He made these audacious claims, these outrageous demands, these amazing promises. Saying the kind of things he did, doing the kind of things he did, he was either... The craziest liar that ever lived, the craziest lunatic that ever lived, or he was actually who we said he was. We really don't have any other viable options, and you're going to have to make a call. You're going to have to render your verdict. God is going to make you make a call. And here's the thing. According to Jesus, what we do with him will determine what God does with us. My verdict on Jesus will dictate God's verdict on me. Which is a big deal. Because bottom line, I'm telling you guys, this is kind of hard to say, but it doesn't really matter that much what you guys think of me. It really doesn't matter that much what I think of me. My reality, my eternity is based on what God thinks of me. You buy that? You too. And if we could really come to understand that, life would get a whole lot easier for us in this world. So we're getting close to the end of Jesus' life here on this earth. Jesus and his disciples have traveled from the north in Galilee down to Jerusalem for the Passover, which is one of the biggest uh, religious festivals that the Jews had. Tens of thousands of Jews are pouring into Jerusalem. On Sunday or Monday, Jesus rides down the Mount of Olives up into Jerusalem on a little donkey. We call it the triumphal entry because it's the way they expected the Messiah to ride into town. And some of the people are stoked and other people are getting mad. Then he goes over to the temple and he turns over some tables and he says, my house, my house is going to be a house of prayer. And some of the people get excited and some of the people get mad because Jesus is really there to pick a fight. On Tuesday and Wednesday, we have stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where Jesus go back into the temple area. He gets into these kind of skirmishes with the leaders of the Jews They all record what we we call these controversy stories. Jesus is picking a fight. And then Judas kind of makes a turn, goes over to the dark side, sells Jesus out. He decides he's going to tell the authorities when and where they can get to Jesus where he's alone and the crowds aren't there to protect him. And then starting Thursday evening, everything starts to slow down. It's almost blow by blow. We probably know more about these next 24 hours there in Jerusalem than we do about any other 24 hours in history. Multiple accounts that mesh credible witnesses for every single piece of the story. First, Jesus eats this Last Supper 
with his disciples. It was supposed to be a Passover meal, a setter, as Jordan mentioned earlier. He's going to turn it into something way bigger. Jesus says that he's writing the final paragraphs of a new contract, a new covenant, a new testament between God and man. This time it's not going to be between God and Israel. This time it's going to be between God and every single man, every single woman, every place of every time. Our covenant with God. A new way to do life with God, for God, God's way. New covenant of grace. And he says, I'm going to make this work through my blood. When supper's over, he takes the disciples up to the Mount of Olives. There's a place there called Gethsemane. He goes there to pray. In fact, he was going to set the whole thing up. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that he's picking a fight that he's going to lose. But while he is in Gethsemane, he prays an incredible prayer. He says, God, I know what's coming, and I think it is awful, and I'd rather not do it. But if it's your will, I'm there. And I'm telling you guys that if you've never had to pray a prayer like that, I hope that you will someday. It's late Thursday evening. Jesus is praying. Peter, James, and John, they're dozing, and Judas shows up because this is the time and this is the place. And he has with him some temple guards, some soldiers, essentially a group of thugs that had been recruited by the Sanhedrin, kind of the, the, high, the highest court, supreme court of the Jews. And it's there in that garden at that moment that we see rejection number one. The first rejection of Jesus that night, and it came from one of his own, and it was delivered with a kiss. Kiss on his lips, a dagger in his heart. And Jesus just calls him out, Judas, you're going to betray the Son of Man, you're going to betray me with a kiss? Really? And it's a scene that we've seen replayed. In fact, it's a scene that maybe you have been a part of at some point in your life. We kiss him with our lips. But our hearts aren't there, and our hearts are malice and treachery. But God is never fooled by the outside. We look respectful and honorable on the outside, and sometimes our hearts are not so pure. God always sees right through it. Why did Judas do it? I don't know for sure. Maybe he was just disappointed with Jesus. After all, he'd seen Jesus' power, right? And Maybe he expected Jesus to mark into Jerusalem and then make things right. He'd, he'd seen Jesus still a storm, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, feed a whole town with a happy meal. He had the power he knew. And he expected Jesus to kick out the Romans and clean up the swamp and clean up their Wall Street and bring justice back to their courts and empty their hospitals and put a chicken in every pot. That's what he wanted the Messiah to do. And Jesus just didn't play. He didn't make things right. And you understand that because you've been disappointed with Jesus, I bet. Time in your life when you have prayed for, you've expected God to do something for you and he hasn't done it. Maybe that's why Judas rejected him. Or maybe it's just the money. Maybe he's just a greedy little jerk. I mean, there are people that shallow, right? Anyway, Peter tries to defend Jesus. He actually takes out his sword and he cuts this guy's ear off. Jesus scolds him and he puts it back. Man, I'm serious. It's there. It's in the text. It's weird. And then Jesus lets them. He lets them arrest him. In fact, why, that's why he's there. Peter and James and John, the others, they're confused. They're stunned. They're terrified. They run and hide. And Judas and the thugs take Jesus over to the house of a guy named Annas. 
Annas, which is a little weird because this Annas isn't the high priest anymore. He's actually the father-in-law of the high priest, but he's kind of like the godfather of Jerusalem. He's the guy who controls the money changers. He's the guy who controls all of the buying and selling of sacrifices in the temple. And Jesus is a threat to Annas. He's a threat to his power. He's a threat to his pocketbook. He was the second man that night to reject Jesus. First Judas, then Annas. For Judas, probably because he was disillusioned with Jesus. We get that. Maybe he's just shallow and greedy. We get that too. For Annas, Jesus is a threat. He's a threat to his money. He's a threat to his power. Annas loved money and he loved power more than he loved God. Have you ever seen a person like that? Have you ever felt that, in fact, yourself? Have you ever seen a, even a Jesus follower push God away because they begin to love their money and their power more than they love their God? We've seen it. And God loves us. Truth is, if you want to push Jesus away, you, you're going to find a reason. You're going to find an excuse. You'll find a way to convince yourself that you really cannot be the Messiah, the Son of God. Anyway, after Annas takes his shot at Jesus, he sends Jesus on to a guy named Caiaphas, who is his son-in-law. He is the high priest. And he's got some of the chief priests, and he's got some of the elders of the people there with him. Kind of the Sanhedrin, the core of the Sanhedrin, which is kind of their top court, their supreme court in Israel. And even though they didn't usually meet that late at night, most of them had never had this opportunity to get this close to Jesus pick at him without a fear of offending the crowds that were always around Jesus. And now they had the advantage, they thought. And they felt that courage that always emboldens cowards when they think they have the advantage. Now there are those who try to discredit the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. After all, they weren't there, right? So how do they know what went on? It's a pretty detailed account. How would they know? Should we trust them? on what's taking place behind these closed doors. On the other hand, we know that some of the guys who were in the room, later on after Jesus rose from the dead, they converted. They became Jesus followers. Guys like Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. You think they had some stories to tell? Some memories that haunted them until the day that they died? You think they're not gonna spill their guts when they finally defect to the church? Most of the guys who are part of the Sanhedrin, they're not looking for the truth. They're looking for an excuse, which is the way a lot of folks are, right? We, we really don't pursue the truth. We look for an excuse. We've already made up our minds. We just have to formulate a reason that'll justify the path we're taking. They've got to make it look good, like it's legal, just, and righteous to kill them. And we have been around those kind of people, people who claim they're looking for the truth, but they're not. And so they put forward these witnesses, these eyewitnesses, who start telling about all these dastardly things that Jesus has done, like when he attacked the temple, they said, with his tongue. But for them, it really boiled down to just one big issue. Here was the deal for them. Jesus, do you really claim to be the Messiah? Are you really saying that you're the Son of God, the Christ? Yeah, you work some miracles. Yeah, you're pretty good with words. But do you actually think you're God or something, Jesus? Answer us. 
Say it out loud, Jesus. And back then they didn't have the Fifth Amendment. You had every right to demand that a person self-incriminate himself. Spill it out, Jesus. Are you he? And at that moment, Jesus held his destiny. He held their destiny. And he held our destiny in his hands. What's he going to say? But it's time. So he says it. And because he says it, you cannot treat Jesus like he's a good man and nothing more. You cannot treat Jesus like he's a great teacher and nothing more. He is either the most sinister liar ever, he's the craziest lunatic ever, or he is exactly what he's about to say he is. Jesus says, yes, I am. (laughs) He just claimed to be God the Yahweh, the I am of the old covenant, did he? And then he says, you're going to see the son of man. You're going to see me. I'm going to be sitting right at the right hand of God. And I'm going to be coming back on the clouds of power, the clouds of heaven. Holy cow, what a claim. Which is why you only have two viable options, either bend your knees or get rid of them. Which option do you think they chose? Caiaphas, the high priest, tore his clothes, which he figured was an appropriate response to flat-out blasphemy, right? I know blasphemy doesn't bother us that nearly, um, that much anymore, where we'd rip our clothes, but maybe it ought to. And when Jesus admitted his guilt, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin became the third group to reject Jesus that night. Judas, Annas, the Sanhedrin. I don't think that all their motives were the same in that room. Caiaphas was looking for an excuse, a reason to put Jesus away because he had God in a little tiny box and when Jesus didn't fit into that box, he had to find his excuse to crush him. You've seen people like that. You may have even tried that. You've got your mind made up about who God is and not even God can change your mind. Or maybe maybe they just had too much to lose. These were guys with power. Maybe it cost too much, too much prestige, too much power, too much control to bend their knees to Jesus. I'm telling you guys that becoming a Jesus follower takes absolute unconditional surrender. And that is really, really, really hard for a man to do. We don't want to surrender to anyone, not even God. And I suppose there are others there, Jewish leaders in that room. They just got it wrong. Good men sometimes get it wrong. We know that three days later, Jesus walks out of his tomb. We know that after that, some of the guys who were in this room became Jesus followers. Holy cow, they'd blown it. We still do that. We've got guys who get it wrong. But at some point, when the Holy Spirit nudges them, convicts them of God's truth, I pray you have the wisdom and the humility to bend your knees to our Lord. And maybe... Probably a few of them knew they were doing wrong and they just kept their mouths shut. Shouldn't have. Have you ever seen something evil and you could have stopped it maybe, you should have tried to stop it maybe, and you did nothing? Have you ever felt the guilt and the shame that comes from saying nothing and doing nothing? Fear can be so powerful. Fear can prevent us from doing the right thing. Have you ever seen a person reject Jesus out of fear? Hmm. Anyway, 
They had Jesus blindfolded. They spit on him. And they beat him. And they mocked him. They spit on the Messiah. They beat up their Savior. And they mocked their Lord. They spit on God. They beat up the one who had come to die for them. And they mocked their only hope. But they had a problem. They needed Jesus dead, but they didn't have the legal authority to kill him. So they had a mission. They had a quest. They had to convince the Roman governor, who was a jerk named Pilate, they had to convince Pilate to kill Jesus before the sun went down. Now this guy, Pilate, had been governor of Judea for seven years. His job was pretty simple. Collect taxes, keep the peace, and make sure that there is no threat to Roman power crushed any threat by any means necessary. And this guy, Pilate, hated the Jews. He loved antagonizing the Jews. He loved reminding them that he had power and they didn't. He hated Jerusalem, so he lived over on the coast. The only reason he's in Jerusalem now is because it's the Feast of Passover. Tens of thousands of Jews are there and needs to make sure that things are kept calm. So early Friday morning, really, really, really early Friday morning, they take Jesus to Pilate. And he's like, well, what's the charge, guys? How come you're here at the crack of dead? Don trying to get this man dead. And at first, the Jews are kind of like, well, if this Jesus wasn't dangerous, we wouldn't be here, right? We don't like you either, Pilate. We just need you to kill him. Just do your job. Pilate starts pushing on him. He starts needling them, yanking their chains. If you have a problem with this guy, you kill him. You deal with him. If you want him dead, you do it. <laughs> And this is hard for them to take because they're going to have to say something they don't want to say. He's making them grovel. He's making them admit their humiliation. He's wanting them to beg. So they're like this. We can't kill him legally. We don't have the power. Oh, that's right. You don't, do you? I've got that power, don't you? You can't, don't even have the right to kill a man in your own country, do you? They push deeper. Listen, Pilate, this isn't just about us. You want Jesus dead too. You want him dead too. He's telling people they don't have to pay their taxes. He's claiming to be some kind of a king. He's the kind of guy you're here to crush, right? Do your job. That kind of gets Pilate's attention. So he takes Jesus inside his palace to question him, which is kind of a slick little move because his accusers couldn't follow I think he knew that. They couldn't defile themselves on the eve of a holy day by going into the house of a Gentile. <laughs> Their hypocrisy was amazing. They're trying to avoid ritual defilement at the same time they're trying to get an innocent man killed. So they have to wait outside. They couldn't control the conversation outside. They know that Jesus is good. He's got power. He's good with words. Maybe he's going to say something to convince Pilate to let him go. They're holding their breath outside. But inside, Jesus is not trying to set himself free. He's trying to set you free. That required dying. So Pilate asked Jesus, are they right? Are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you a threat to me? Are you a threat to Rome? And Jesus says, yeah, I'm a king. But I'm not the kind of king you're thinking of. My kingdom isn't of this world. And I don't know why, for some reason, Pilate went along. He understood. He tells the Jewish leaders, I'm not going to kill this guy. I have no reason to kill him. 
seems like just kind of a harmless fool to me. Ticks him off. They say, this guy's been stirring up the people. He's disturbing the peace. He's been causing riots all the way from Galilee, <clears throat> Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and they're exaggerating a little, but Jesus needed killing. They were righteous, right? But someone messed up. Someone mentioned that Jesus was from Galilee, which is out of Pilate's jurisdiction. It's all he needed. Well, Galilee's Herod's jurisdiction. Send him to Herod. Let, him, let Herod take care of it. Now this Herod is a jerk too. He really is. He was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the guy who tried to have Jesus killed when he was a baby and then later rebuilt the temple into the magnificent architectural wonder that it was at that time. When Herod the Great died, some of his sons kind of took over control of some of his territories. This Herod, he was the governor of Galilee. He just happened to be in in Jerusalem for the Passover and he was the next one to abuse Jesus. Herod was stoked when he heard he got to see Jesus. He'd heard the rumors, he'd heard the stories about healings and exorcisms and resurrections and stuff like that and it kind of looks like he just wanted a private performance. Show off, Jesus, I want to see something cool. Dazzle me. Show me a little David Blaine, show me a little David Copperfield, right? Work some miracles. Guys, give me some popcorn, this could be good. Jesus shows him nothing, which annoys the bejeegers out of this Herod. So Herod starts quizzing Jesus, and Jesus answers him nothing. And so finally Herod says, if you're not going to play my games, I'm going to make you a joke. A buffoon treating God like a buffoon, which buffoons do. Have you ever seen people like Herod who laugh at Jesus? Buffoons who treat God like a buffoon? People who absolutely refuse to take Jesus seriously at all, who mock him, who treat him with contempt, who treat Jesus and Jesus' followers as a circus act? And I'm telling you guys, if Jesus didn't walk out of that tomb, if he was not the Messiah, the Son of God, they're right. If you reject Jesus as your Savior, your Messiah, your Lord, then he either has to be the most sinister liar ever or the craziest buffoon ever. But what if he did walk out of that tomb? What if he really is who he said he was? Herod's rejection is the fourth of Jesus that died. First Judas, then Annas, then the Sanhedrin, now Herod. Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate and Pilate is still ticked. Called together the guys who wanted Jesus dead. And he says, I told you, I don't think he's guilty. Herod doesn't think he's guilty either. So what about this? What if I just beat the snot out of Jesus and let him go? Would that make you cockroaches happy? Think about that. He had Jesus beaten, flogged, brutalized. He had his Savior beaten, flogged, and brutalized with the kind of beating that could in itself kill a man. Because guys, we've never seen a beating quite like a Roman flogging. Jesus is stripped, his hands are tied to a post above him. One or two soldiers would use this cat of nine tails whip, several thongs of leather into which are woven pieces of stone and bone and glass. And they'd start whipping him from his shoulders all the way down to his legs. First it would bruise, then it would cut, then it would tear. 
Then they put a crown of thorns on this so-called king's head and beat it into his head and a robe over his shoulders so they could mock him as a so-called king. And I guess Pilate hopes that's enough to satisfy the bloodlust of these cockroaches. Maybe even elicit a little bit of sympathy. After all, Jesus is ruined, isn't he? He's been shamed, humiliated, dishonored, disgraced, discredited. Isn't that enough? He's probably going to die from the beating anyway. And this time it's the crowds. The crowds are the fifth rejectors of Jesus that evening. We're told that there was a custom back then where the king would pardon a criminal at a feast. Pilate gave him an option. I can free Jesus or I can free a real thug, a real criminal named Barabbas. And the gospels tell us that the leading priests stirred up the crowd. They stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas, not Jesus. And when Pilate asked them what he wanted, they wanted him to do with Jesus, they said, kill him, crucify him. The mob, the crowd, stirred by these men of power, kill him, crucify him. Why did they reject Jesus even after he was ruined, shamed, humiliated, dishonored, disgraced, and discredited? I think it's possible I think it's probably even probable that some of these guys in this crowd were in that other crowd four or five days earlier when Jesus came into Jerusalem on that young donkey and may even have been the ones hoping that he was the Messiah come to rescue Israel, right? Waving palm branches, putting their clothes down on the road in front of him. And four or five days later, they are calling for his murder. Meteoric. Fickle. And you've seen some people who used to be Jesus followers or wanted to be a Jesus follower that after they pushed him away, they became fierce in their anger at and even hatred of Jesus. Maybe he disappointed them that deeply when he refused to be the kind of God they wanted him to be. But I think it's more likely that most of the people in this crowd were just stooges. They were lackeys for the powerful. Have you ever seen people do whatever it takes to please and serve the people who in their minds are their gods? Have you ever seen a man reject Jesus to please a girl? Have you ever seen a girl reject Jesus to please a guy? Have you ever seen anybody reject or push Jesus away to get noticed by people who could advance them at work? Hmm. Almost there. One more. One more rejection. Pilate tries one more time to set Jesus free. He says, you guys take him. I don't find anything wrong with him. You kill him. You crucify him. Now, can you imagine Pilate's moral bankruptcy? I think this guy's innocent. He may be a fool, but he's not a criminal. If you want this fool dead, kill him. Jews are like, but he claims to be the son of God. Son of God. And now Pilate's scared. Son of God. I mean, the Romans had all these myths about sons of God, guys like Achilles and Hercules, guys like that, almost superheroes, super warriors, kind of like Captain America in a kilt, right? So was this Jesus really a threat to Rome? So he questions Jesus one more time, and he said, Jesus, who are you really? 
Where are you from really? Answer me. Don't you realize, Jesus, that I have power over you? (laughs) Don't you realize that your life and your death are in my hands? Don't you love Jesus' response? Really? Pilate's scared and confused. The Jews are like, if you release this guy, you're not a friend to Caesar. You're a traitor to Caesar. And that's a damning accusation. Crucify him. And Pilate says, you want me to crucify your king. And this is where I think the accusers reach their lowest low. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. Which is way truer than any of them imagined. At that moment, they had no king but Caesar. Not even God. And Pilate washes his hands as if washing his hands could make him clean. And Pilate says, I'm innocent of this innocent man's blood as if words could make this man clean. And that's rejection number six. Rejected by a man who was unwilling to do what was right. Save his own skin, maybe, probably. But he knew what was right and he did what was wrong. And that is how the second most important day ever unfolded. That's the day they killed our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord. Thank God. An unbelievable 12 hours or so, Judas, Annas, Sanhedrin, Herod, the crowds, finally Pilate, six rejections in 12 hours or so. Pretty amazing. And for so many different reasons, some I think were just disappointed with Jesus because he refused to be the kind of Messiah, the kind of Savior they wanted him to be, so they turned on him. We do too. For others, it was just greed. Sometimes we love money, we love stuff way more than we love God, right? For others, he's a threat. Jesus is a threat to their position, their power, their pleasure, because sometimes Jesus gets in our way, doesn't he? Sometimes good men get it wrong at first. Guys, if you're really a seeker after truth, at some point in your life, you're going to have to respond to the nudges of God who convince you of his truth and his righteousness and his judgment. Some people rejected him out of fear because sometimes we fear the wrong things. It is stupid to fear any person, anything more than to fear God. Sometimes, oftentimes, people just don't even give them a second thought. They treat them as a joke, a buffoon. And if you're never raised from the dead, they're probably right. But in the end, if he really is the Messiah, it doesn't matter why you push Jesus away. It doesn't matter what your excuses are. It's all going to lead to the same place. You're going to do life without God. You're going to do life for self, and you're going to face eternity without him. And if Jesus was a liar, I suppose that pushing him away is justified. If he's a buffoon, pushing him away makes sense. But if he really is the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, do you really think any excuse for pushing him away is going to cut it? Now, little did they know that every one of these guys was securing their place in history. 
Judas, Annas, Caiaphas, Herod, Pilate. We remember their names. People all over the world remember their names in a lot of different languages. There are not many kids named after these guys, right? But their kids are going to know their names. Every one of these guys is trying to make Jesus a footnote in their story. And every one of them became a footnote in his. All of them thought they were putting Jesus on trial, that they were rendering a verdict on Jesus. And they were. But what they didn't realize is that in reality, they were the ones on trial. And what judgment they made on Jesus would dictate God's judgment on them. As it is with us. For every one of us, our verdict on Jesus will determine how our story unfolds and how our story ends. And God will require a verdict. And our verdict will dictate his. Let's pray together. Father, these are sobering stories. We see men who were pushing you away brutally, viciously. And it hurts. And in part it hurts because we realize that there are pieces of us in them. Some of them came to their senses and bent their knees to Jesus. And we pray that that's where we will be. We recognize, Lord, that if three days after his death he raised from the dead and what he said was true and what he offers is real hope and it's worth bending our knees for. We love you dearly. We want to represent you well. In the name of Christ we pray.